Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending July 22nd, 2023. This week, are we the bad guys? Yes. No. (laughs) Uh, Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I'm Kim Hollis, digital advertising guru and guest starring in the dumbest episode of House Ever. It legitimately was not lupus. (laughs) (laughs) With me are Tim Bridey, content creator, gamer, and thinking, wait a minute, weren't there five of us on this podcast? Season four? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I guess it's budget cuts, or we had to kill someone off, or maybe I'm next. Who knows? Stay tuned. Also, David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride, streaming media analyst, and someone who will never open medical test results after midnight ever again. We're recording this on Saturday, Wednesday night. We learned that Kim tested positive for something. We still don't know what. (laughs) And the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burrell, celebrating Shark Week. Did you know that purely by coincidence, National Geographic Channel is hosting Shark Fest this week? I mean, what are the odds? What? In our deep dive this week, we're into the second week of Hollywood's double strike and things are looking dire. The writers and actors are both in it for the long haul and no one's talking. With the unions and studios far apart on a number of issues, is Hollywood facing an existential crisis? I've, um, I've been struggling with this question for weeks. The pandemic accelerated cord cutting as consumers moved towards streaming. And while the studios were happy to get all the new subscribers, the business model just wasn't there. But back in 2008, people have heard the phrase, Jeff Zucker spoke of the entertainment industry trading analog dollars for digital dimes. In the 15 years since, studios still haven't figured out how to monetize their new streaming model to make up for the loss of their old theatrical and broadcast model. And the consequence is that the creatives are the ones being left holding the bag. Yeah, and that's why we know we're here in it for the long haul. We've seen streaming residual checks now, and in some instances, they are literally nothing. In fact, this is a real thing that happened. Two different performers posted residual checks that showed they owed a streaming service who employed them a penny. That means you, the listener, earned more from their programs that quarter than they did. The math checks out on this. Why would performers negotiate a settlement that involves status quo when those rates justify the existence of the entire anti-work subreddit. As Bob Dylan once said, when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. I like to reference John Langraff and the term he coined, peak TV, frequently. Yes, take a drink every time I say it. Since 2015, Langraff, the CEO of FX Networks, has made it his personal mission to track peak TV. What he means by that is the rising number of original shows premiering every year. It's not a reflection of quality, but quantity, even though some of those shows have been great. It's no coincidence that the pandemic pushed peak TV to the highest number of original shows ever, or that after the pandemic, the number has begun to decline and subscriber numbers on streaming has flattened. Hollywood is now in the midst of their biggest labor dispute in 60 years. What's important to note is that even with the ever-increasing number of shows, we weren't seeing a significant greater number of episodes. While there were more episodes, it was not a dramatic increase. What was happening was that we were seeing more and more short series of five or six episodes. We talked about this in the pre-show. It's a lot more appealing for a streaming service to offer you a brand new series 
than it is for them to offer you the third, fourth, or 10th episode of an ongoing series. More people are interested in the new series than in new episodes of an existing series. What that means is that before the pandemic, in the old linear days, a TV actor or writer could get a job that kept them employed for most of the year, filming 20 or 24 episodes of a show. Now, for an actor or writer to make ends meet, they have to do four or five, six-episode shows in a year. At the same time, productions get more expensive. Doing four sets of six-episode shows isn't the same as doing a single 24-episode season. You need four different sound stages. You need four different sets. It doesn't scale. Peak TV, driven by this insatiable demand for new content on streaming, has driven Hollywood to an unsustainable model. Yeah, Raul knows that I don't agree with some of his math here. I consider it a kind of, I don't know, sloppy guesstimate for a situation that isn't one size fits all. But his underlying premise is correct from a manufacturing perspective. You've heard the thing that Big Pharma says, okay, the second pill costs five cents, but the first pill that costs $50 million. That's how it works. Every time you make more of something, you reduce the scale over time. Once you get everyone on set and working on a television series, you mitigate the costs over the next several months because you've already hired everyone. You've already set up the production. You no longer have those pre-production expenses that are shockingly expensive in many cases. So you're driving down the cost by spreading it out across, you know, 13 episodes, 22 episodes, sometimes as many as 26 episodes of what we've known as conventional linear television broadcasting. Now we've got six episode series. It doesn't actually work. You can't do that. Prime example. It's a recent revelation, and this one blows my mind. Secret Invasion cost $212 million to film a six-episode series. And that's not an estimate, folks. That's a reveal from corporate filings in the United Kingdom. That means every episode of Sacred Invasion cost $35 million to film. I think we all agree that in trying to rush the production, they wasted more money for a lesser quality product where a 10 or 12 episode season might have filled in the blanks better. It would have given them more content stretched out over time and a better ratio per episode. The mistake Disney made here and the mistake Netflix has made repeatedly is that you increase cost per episode when you reduce episode count. You get better bang for the buck by setting up a stable production for an extended period of time. In fact, I'd argue something Hollywood should consider is filming 30 episodes of a television series at once and then splitting them into three seasons of streaming programming. In his infamous memo from 2011, the Hulu CEO at the time, Jason Kylar, laid out the case for why streaming was better than linear. He talked about convenience, on-demand viewing, and fewer but better targeted ads. He was essentially refuting Jeff Zucker's digital dimes concern. But what Hulu offered at the time that was most important was that it was an amalgam of content from multiple studios. That, in fact, is what has sustained Hulu to this day. And that may be what saves Hollywood. A studio will argue that they don't want their hit movie or TV show to draw viewers to a competitor's product. Why should anyone watch The Office produced by NBC Universal, and then slip into an episode of Friends produced by Warner Brothers. If they just continue watching more of The Office, then NBC Universal gets all the eyeballs. And eyeballs equals money, whether that means subscription revenue or ad revenue. But the plain fact of the matter is that operating a streaming service is costly, not only in terms of infrastructure, but also in terms of acquiring and retaining subscribers, which you do by creating new content. 
So I'm warming to the idea that nobody is suggesting yet, but it involves taking advantage of the deep pockets of Amazon and Apple and maybe even Netflix, which is highly profitable right now. It's the idea of taking new streaming content and then licensing it out after a certain period. In other words, we're going to recreate the pay one, pay two kind of window we've had for theatrical film releases. The difference is that Amazon and Apple would supplement Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, NBC Universal, whoever, by paying to air some of that content after, I don't know, four months of an exclusive window. Something, let's say, debuts on Peacock, like uh, the now banished Rise of the Pink Ladies. And if it doesn't work on Peacock, that's okay, because then you sell it to Apple and you say, hey, Apple marketing department, I'm sure you guys could do something with a Grease prequel. You let them try it and they build your brand while paying you. I doubt that... (sighs) Let's be honest, Disney's probably not going to do this with Marvel or Star Wars, but it sure would help with something like financing their mega expensive Pixar projects, wouldn't it? And it's no different, at least theoretically, from what they used to do with their Star's pay window, where basically something would leave the theater as a Pixar film, and then the first place you could watch it back in the day was on Star's, a cable channel. It's that same kind of concept to me that I think could prove viable over time. But Roel, I know you see it differently, don't you? I think maybe the way to save Hollywood is to have a number of the studios come together and offer one single streaming service. Do we need Paramount Plus and Max and Peacock if they could all just be one? Costs would be reduced in a number of ways from reduced infrastructure to having to produce fewer new shows. They could even bump up their monthly subscription price instead of three services each charging $9.99 a month. It's only one service charging $14.99 a month. You know, that's already less than what we're paying for Max now. I think the current price is $16.99 a month on that. But just to a larger point, aren't you just describing really a single channel cable service or, I don't know, Netflix circa 2009? Yeah, Netflix, Hulu. But the consumer gets all the content at basically half of what they were paying for multiple streaming services. And and the studios win by increasing their overall subscriber numbers. But the losers here are then the creatives who end up producing fewer shows overall. We're not going to go back to the era of 20 or 24 episodes per season of a series. But the increased revenue means that the studios will be able to finally pay those creatives what they're worth. Furthermore, with studios sharing a single streaming service, so there'll be less emphasis on keeping viewership information private. To the contrary, they would have to be transparent for the studios to be able to play well together. And with transparency in viewership, we now return to the old residual model. Everyone knows exactly how many people have viewed a specific show. And now we can start paying out people for the success of their shows on streaming. But This is all fanciful. The studios aren't about to give up their streaming services and play nice together. Right. I understand the idea you're suggesting here, but I legitimately see about 25 different flaws with it. And that's because it is better in theory than it would be in execution because Hollywood is a predatory place where people do not work as teams in really any instance for the most part. It's depressing, but it's true. You know, what's more likely here is that some of these studios will collapse outright and get bought out by a competitor or by a behemoth tech company with deep pockets that can bury those losses related to streaming in a line item of their quarterly report. When you're hearing Amazon talk about their quarterly earnings, if they even talk about shows on Prime Video, it's simply to crow about potential success of one show. The fact that they're probably losing billions of dollars every quarter on Prime Video never comes up. Just to a large 
point. I don't think the situation is anywhere near this dire anyway. You've got Wall Street tycoons whining is what a lot of this is. I mean, we're talking about something trivial to them as they take caviar baths on $700 million yachts. Everybody knew going in that they're going to be a transition from linear to streaming, and it would come with speed bumps. That's the cost of doing business with disruptive emerging technologies. Progress always works this way. I've got no patience for the week who cannot stomach a few struggles along the way. I mean, come on. The issue of automation is a real one, though, isn't it, Raul? Oh, absolutely. We've seen it before. During this crisis, I've frequently been reminded of the turmoil that North America's auto industry underwent in the 1980s. Hear me out. Foreign car manufacturers had more modern facilities and were undermining American companies in cost and quality. The only way for GM, Ford, and Chrysler to compete was to modernize, but that meant automation and massive layoffs, and that meant convincing the auto workers union that this was going to be the only way to keep the industry from collapsing and disappearing entirely. I don't think Hollywood is there yet. I don't think that the unions need to accept deep cuts in order to save Hollywood. I'd say that the unions need saving more than Hollywood does. Movies and shows will continue to be produced in the United States, even if Warner Brothers or Universal isn't around anymore. That's where this differs from the auto manufacturing crisis of the 1980s. You're, you're talking about actual manufacturing, which is admittedly the analogy I made earlier, but that is different from creating the arts. Uh, a machine is never going to be able to create something as good as a human can in terms of entertainment. And when I say never, I mean legitimately never. This isn't one of those things where it's up for debate in my eyes. My Alexa still can't figure out I want to play my favorite song, even though my Alexa has played that song over and over again for, you know, 15 years now. Systems don't work like that. They don't have that type of logic. And so it's not quite the same, even though I completely agree with you that the union analogs are unmistakable. And you think there's more to it than that, don't you? Your point is entirely valid. Does it matter if we were driving cars exclusively made in Japan and Korea instead of Detroit? It would have just been another car. On the other hand, while we do enjoy content from Japan and Korea, we will still always need content created in the United States, which is why the unions are more important than the studios. The actors and writers will continue to need work in the United States, even if the studios that currently exist no longer exist in the future. I think we're all pretty pro-union on this. I mean, the studio demands are ridiculous, and that's just Wall Street being stupid. And Kim, that wasn't the only way Wall Street was stupid this week, was it? No, and let's hope the unions do get what they deserve. As we move on to our rapid fire this week, Netflix was first out of the gates with their quarterly earnings report, hosting some strong revenue and subscriber numbers beyond what they had forecast. David, how did Wall Street react to this great news? Ah, poorly. Uh, <laughs> at one point, we all need to admit that capitalism has failed. Are we ready to say that yet? It's ridiculous, right? It's stupid at the very least. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> Every single bit of what happened in the wake of the earnings call, it just shouldn't pass a laugh test. A half hour before close on that day, Netflix was trading at $481.70. The following day, it had fallen to $435.02. Folks, that is a drop of more than $46. It closed for the week at $427.50. You're hearing this and your first thought is, what disaster befell Netflix to cause this? Nothing. Netflix earned $8.2 billion in quarterly revenue with net income, net 
income of $1.5 billion for a quarter. That paces out to $6 billion for the year. They also added almost 6 million subscribers. All these sound like good things, right? Well, now I will try to not to giggle as I describe the why of it. Um, please give me a minute here. Netflix stock fell because Wall Street had gotten too excited about Netflix's upside and purchased the stock too much, driving up the price higher than a quarterly net income of $8.2 billion would justify. That's right, folks. Netflix stock dropped because Wall Street sucks at math and stock analysis, not because of anything the company did. By the way, something else germane to this conversation is that uh, $1.5 billion in net profit for April through June at Netflix represents more than triple what the striking performers are requesting annually from all streaming companies. And the streaming services want you to believe that they cannot afford to pay more, which is why we're doing the is Hollywood dying, is streaming killing Hollywood nonsense every time. We are playing into a false premise anytime we bring that conversation up. No joke, because none of it is true. All these companies can't afford this, it just bites into their bottom line and makes them somewhat less profitable. Netflix's co-CEO, Ted Sarandos, will tell you that he's pro-union and that he feels their pain. Was Ted Sarandos wearing a monocle and a top hat when he said that? (laughs) (laughs) It's important to note that Netflix has indicated they're seeing and will continue to see increased cash flow due to reduced production costs. This is something that we're going to be hearing frequently from the other studios over the coming days. Don't be fooled. The reduced production costs are because they've had to stop producing everything in the United States due to the strike. This short-term benefit will be offset shortly as the reduction in productions means fewer movies in theaters and shows on TV and streaming and less revenue in the long term. And with actors now on strike and unable to promote their projects, many movies that depend on that marketing push are going to get pushed back in their release schedule. It's been suggested that Warner Brothers is going to push back a number of their upcoming projects. We are starting to see a rehash of the crisis we saw during the pandemic when nothing new was being produced and what we already had in the can wasn't being released. I feel more strongly than ever that some studios are not going to survive this strike. Folks, let's be blunt about all this. It's so stupid what is happening right now. None of it makes mathematical sense. It is all posturing from bad faith agents. Meanwhile, linear networks are doing what they can to backfill their fall TV schedules with shows, not only with sports and reality program, but also series from streaming. That's right. Paramount is bringing SEAL Team back to CBS. And in a genius move, Yellowstone will also be airing on CBS in two hour episodes. And with Brie Larson unavailable to promote her upcoming Captain Marvel sequel, because she's an actor on strike, Disney is bringing episodes of Miss Marvel from Disney Plus to ABC. And streamers are also looking for ways to increase their revenue. Peacock is seeing its first price hike ever, and Netflix has eliminated its basic ad-free plan in the U.S. and the U.K. Read the room, Peacock. (laughs) I imagine Peacock thinks that they can swing it. I, on the other hand, just signed up for two more years of Peacock for free, thanks to the fact that I am a Xfinity high-speed internet subscriber. The Netflix news, though, is not surprising. They'd already eliminated that tier in Canada, and indications were that Netflix was actually making more money from subscribers on their lower-priced ad-supported tier. Plus, it looks like the share of Netflix revenue that comes from advertising is still small, so there is 
plenty of room for growth there. Well, as we move on from talk of the strike, there's probably, Tim, not much to talk about with regards to the box office. Am I right? Oh, no, this is like the most exciting weekend ever in box office. And it's <laughs> absolutely hysterical that that's the case because, folks, it's Barbenheimer weekend. Yes, we got Barbie and Oppenheimer opening in theaters. We knew both would do well, but Barbie has a Friday number of 70 million. 70.5 million, 22.3 million of that from Thursday night. Oppenheimer, 33 million, 10.5 million of that Thursday night. It doesn't completely turn Hollywood's fortunes around, but this is one of the best weekends of box office in recent memory. Imagine if we could go back in time and tell Robert Oppenheimer as he was going through all this trauma that eventually his story would be inevitably linked with a doll who loved the color. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am surprised Oppenheimer didn't do better because I just I feel like I knew so many people just hyped for the double feature just to see him one right after the other. Yeah, uh, Barbie's on its way to my God, like what, 170 million? It's really tough to say because there've been so many sellouts. You, right. Like normally, you'd say the internal multiplier wouldn't be as good, but at this point, you can't rule anything out. I feel like the best analog is Sex in the City which was a film that like very few people saw coming. I know that Tim, you actually did, but that was like a night out for women where they could, you know, go to a movie, have some beverages and whatnot. Barbie is a play date is what it is. It is a glorified adult play date. And there are going to be a lot of these on Saturday night, just as there were on Friday night, Sunday. And after that, we'll have to wait and see, but it helps. This is a really good film, isn't it? Just the idea of it on paper makes you think like, really, this, this can't possibly be good, but what, Greta Gerwig did with it turned out to be remarkable. It's what, like 90% fresh at Rotten Tomatoes. Oppenheimer is like 93. Both these movies are very good. Horace Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan. So he's one of the few notable names uh, in directing right now. Yeah, this whole weekend is just blowing my mind. Barbie could come in a framework from like 150 to 210 million. It's it's absurd at the moment. It's, it's hysterical. Uh, Oppenheimer is going to come in with, uh, what, 80 million? Jeez. Right? And as we said, one one amazing weekend doesn't turn what a kind of meh 2023 has been. Or as David is saying, it's been kind of a disaster. But it's still just good to see this because we, we often thought things like this just would not happen anymore. I love the headlines that are telling us how Barbie and Oppenheimer are combining for a $250 million opening weekend. That's like saying that Paramount Plus and Netflix combined to make <laughs> NCIS a hit show on streaming. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> 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 yeah, nothing else new this weekend that would then count. Like, look, we combined with Barbie and Oppenheimer to make $300 million. But yeah, it, it's very funny. We haven't really talked about it, but we need to mention this movie, Sound of Freedom, that opened on July 4th. And due to a coordinated campaign to, quote, pay it forward and the Farious Group is buying out theaters, it's made $110 million to date. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, we've seen this before. It happened in the 1970s with a film called Deep Throat. What we call it is money laundering. <laughs> <laughs> that is certainly one theory that leans towards likely, but we would be remiss if I didn't point it out. It's actually won a couple of weekdays, including Thursday, if you don't count the new releases, which technically don't count as they're not officially released. But yeah, it's a thing. A couple of years from now, we're going to like be like, wait, this movie did what? And it's about what? But yeah, Mission Impossible 
Dead Reckoning Part 1 has also crossed 100 million in 10 days. It's amazing considering the dichotomy between the quality of these this franchise and, and the box office. It, it's, mm-hmm. I, I don't get it, but I'm looking forward to seeing it shortly. Actually, my probably my first time in a theater since the pandemic. This weekend is hysterical. Barbie absolutely crushing it. Something I did not think possible. And of course, Hollywood will learn all the wrong lessons from this. <laughs> yep, I feel like that is a terrific analysis right there with what you just said in that final <laughs> sentence. <laughs> okay, so probably nothing to talk about in streaming then. Oh, you're wrong, Kim. We oh, have the, man. The, I know. It's it's wild. We have the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, June 19th to Sunday, June 25th, 2023. Originals is led by Black Mirror, which we expected. 1.5 billion minutes for 27 total episodes. This was the first full week of its latest season. No surprise that it took a jump. I'm actually surprised how long they took to make a new one mm-hmm. of uh, this anthology series. And you would think as soon as the strikes are settled, they would try to fast track uh, yet another. Probably pandemic related, I suppose. Yes, because we'll never run out of dystopian story ideas. <laughs> that is a bottomless well. <laughs> Uh, something new in second, The Bear, 853 million minutes yep, for 18 episodes. Of course, the entire second season of 10 episodes dropped on June 22nd. Uh, I definitely don't recall seeing this previously when the first yeah, season Dave, premiered year, a year ago. Yeah, David spoke to this, and I think a lot of this has to do with the slow burn of the first season of yes. The Bear. <laughs> People didn't really pick up on it initially, and it started mm-hmm. gaining attention, especially during award season. So yep. by the time season two came around, there was all that pent-up demand. I, I, I mean, I was really excited for it. And it just felt like we were waiting forever. And it turns out like we had only waited literally one year for season two to come around. That's a year exactly or maybe less. Worse. Yeah. When I saw this was coming out, I was shocked. I'm like, wait a minute. It's only been a couple months in season one. And I realized, oh, no, it was a year ago. It just it gained all that momentum earlier this year from just racking up lots of uh, best of the year and just awards. So, yeah, once the second season was going to come out, you knew it would be be huge and i'm still thrown by the the marketing of it because it is an exclusive hulu series yet they seem to bill it under the fx tag which is a a network well fx only has three different networks they can't possibly fill it all up with content (laughs) they they, they need they need to put some of that on hulu too (laughs) so yeah for a little bit i was i was like wait is this on broadcast and then also go stream no it it is a pure hulu series but yeah a big number it's actually just it's just a three-day number so this is going to crush it next weekend yeah hulu uh, when the when the second season premiere talked about you know those nebulous numbers about like how great it was mm-hmm. and that was their most viewed debut on the streaming service they never tell you exactly what the numbers are but given just what we've seen so far it seems like it's going to be great it's going to do fantastic and also it's probably garnered a lot of attention because of a number of Emmy nominations, although in the category of comedy series. So I'm wondering if maybe people are watching a different The Bear. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually predicting two billion next weekend. So bold prediction, you heard it here first. Once once uh once it has that full week of the second season, it's gonna top the, the chart next week because I don't think I'm missing any new other new program. Third is Manifest, still here, 658 million minutes for 62 episodes as the Netflix released the final episode of the final season a few weeks back, and it, it's still here. Uh the sur- surrogacy, we saw that last week, 583 million minutes for 24 episodes. It's like a international drama series, telenovela type thing with that many episodes for just a season. All right, but here's something kind of exciting and interesting to talk about. In fifth from Disney Plus, Secret Invasion, 461 million minutes, one episode. The first episode, they'd only dropped the premiere. They didn't do multiples because it's only six total episodes. Premiered on the 21st, and that's a lot. 
Yeah, fantastic showing for a Disney Plus Marvel premiere, although I wish it had been a different series. Secret Invasion starts slow, and anyone who watched this is going to think, what are all Disney Plus Marvel shows like this? I would love to see how Loki Season 2 does, and unfortunately, I feel that Secret Invasion's slow start is going to scare off some viewers. There have been a lot of apples to oranges comparisons to other Disney Plus series for Marvel. It doesn't work because most of them have debuted with two episodes. This one only debuted with one, which cuts the runtime automatically. It was also shorter as far as an opening episode goes. And the other thing to know, if you're interested in Secret Invasion and have Hulu but not Disney Plus, you can watch the first three episodes of Secret Invasion on Hulu right now as part of your service. It's a new thing that Disney is trying. I guess since we're getting back into, quote, the MCU proper and, you know, it's familiar characters. Here's Samuel L. Jackson, among other characters. We know Nick Fury. We know him. I'm impressed by this debut just for one episode. It says it's about 55 minutes long. Other episodes may be coming a little shorter. So but this is when we're counting millions of minutes, hundreds of millions of minutes for Something that runs about an hour. That's a lot of eyeballs. Yeah, it's actually probably closer to 45 with credits. Okay. Yeah, they, so, they, they do all, so. also overload. I'm sure they count in terms of the, the runtime. And But I'm still pretty impressed by this number. So it, if, as long as, as Rule said, if people stick with it, I know, David, you'd said it starts out, you agree it started out slow, but then it does pick up a couple episodes in. It's an interesting spy series that it seems like a lot of people are enjoying. I just didn't particularly enjoy the most recent episode. Okay. But yeah, it's going to add episodes week by week. Uh, so I'm very curious to see where it goes here, whether people stick with it or we get that binge bump at the end of the season uh, with just six total episodes. It, it is very short. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited by this number and, and curious to see what happens. Ted Lasso continues its slide down the list. I think it'll hang on one more week before we don't see it anymore. 459 million minutes, 34 episodes. Uh, Never Have I Ever has been here for a few weeks with its fourth and final season, 447 million minutes for 40 episodes. Uh, Still here, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, 393 million minutes for 12 total episodes. This is also releasing week by week on Paramount Plus. Just one more episode and that was enough to to keep it on on the list. So now I'm hopeful it will be here through its entire 10 episode run, which goes through mid-August. And that's, that's a good sign for the Star Trek Network. FUBAR, the Arnold Schwarzenegger series, a previous original chart topper, 317 million minutes for eight episodes. And wrapping up originals with Catching Killers, 304 million minutes for 11 episodes. The third season of this anthology series about, guess what, serial killers uh, dropped on June 23rd. So it'll probably be here next week with an even higher number. Movies is led by Extraction 2, 1 billion minutes. Sure, why not? I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with it. We kind of expected that. It's uh, a long-awaited uh, sequel for Netflix and their search for a movie franchise. In second, Avatar The Way of Water, 671 million minutes. This one credited to Disney Plus and Max. Not what I would have expected for something that was such a monster at the box office, but I- I'm wondering if it's just this type of movie is just something that, sure, you'll watch it on streaming, but obviously it's meant for theaters. It's certainly better seen in theaters, yes. I am surprised that it's burned out 70% in two weeks, though. That's pretty alarming to me. Yeah, I, I, I would agree to that. Uh, new in third, The Mule, 484 million minutes. This is the 2018 film directed by and starring Clint Eastwood, because of course it is. I don't have any information on whether this returns to Netflix this week, so why it's why it's here, I have no clue. 
So we'll move on to something new from Netflix. Take care of Maya, 400 million minutes in fourth. We did talk about it on what's new for this week. That's right. This is the controversial documentary about a child with an illness where the doctor believed that the child was being abused by the parents and took extraordinary measures to save the child, even though the doctor's supposition at this point was probably inaccurate. Uh, the original extractions uh, still get to bump by the existence of Extraction 2, uh, 321 million minutes in fifth. Disney Plus's Moana, the evergreen Disney Plus content with Moana in six, 236 million minutes. Encanto's there in ninth, 190 million minutes. Uh, seventh, back to Netflix, The Perfect Fine, 229 million minutes. This is a romantic comedy starring Gabriel Union. All right, your pause gave you away here. This is the fake one. <laughs> yes, I made this up. <laughs> I was just double double checking uh, who who was in it. I'm sorry. I I'm pretty sure we we mentioned it, but they had no recollection of it till I went and double checked what it was. And yeah, it actually is at least a new release from Netflix this this year. So just a three day number. Maybe it'll be here next week. But you know, it wasn't going to be a world beater. But it it made the made the chart in eighth though. 220 million minutes viewed for 47 Ronin, a spectacular what? flop. Yes, a spectacular box office flop from 2013. That was a running joke among box office profits for several years. They do a new 47 Ronin sequel with people we really like, including AJ Lee. Mm-hmm. And what that does is that doesn't help the new film, but it retroactively helps the old film. What? Well, after the fact, that was that there was a something called Blade of the 47 Ronin that was released by Netflix last October. However, the reason this is here is on June 16th, it came back to Netflix from wherever it was. So it was a full week of it being treated as new content. Do better, people. I hate Netflix. So we much. made fun of this movie for years just because it when it flopped and it just we were like, well, maybe that was just too many Ronin. Maybe it wasn't enough Ronin. We'll never know for sure. We do have questions about the choice of 47 Ronin. That has been a long time sticking point. Frankly, this and Oogie Loves were box office profits go to punching bags for as long as I can remember. <laughs> And the fact that 220 million uh, minutes worth of people just said, ooh, let's watch that. Where the hell were you when it came out, people? They needed you. Yeah, this was a Christmas 2013 release, budgeted for somewhere around $200 million. Oh, and this starred Keanu Reeves, by the way, which was basically the nadir of his career to this point. And at least he rebounded with the, the John Wick series. But yeah, it, it actually made $175 million worldwide. So that's that's not good. Yeah, and most of that number was was worldwide box office. It was $38 million domestically, just an absolute comedic flop, which is why we joked about it for, for years over in box office profits. All right, I mentioned Encanto was in ninth, 190 million minutes, and also new on Netflix, well, new but not new, Unbroken, 174 million minutes in 10th. This is the Angelina Jolie-directed biopic. From 2014 that, guess what, came back to Netflix on June 16th. So this was a full week again of being considered a new movie. And one of the weirdest films ever to get a sequel. How do you sequel a biopic? Well, a lot of it is about his PTSD afterward. Uh, The subtitle of the sequel was Path to Redemption. But I've seen the original. I have not seen the sequel because I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was basically the Pure Flix Entertainment who makes faith-based movies went ahead and made a sequel for like, you know, $6 and then somehow managed to release it in theaters. Okay. Yep. I, I vaguely remember this now. Okay. You got it. It's the God's Not Dead people. Yep. Yeah. All right. I will say, completely unrelated, the Pure Flix Entertainment people were some of the kindest people I've ever dealt with as professionals, legitimately. So there's that. 
Oh, that, that, that's good to hear. Uh, this is this is a fun week for Netflix and that you cannot explain any of this logically, but that's OK. There's nothing else weird happening with Netflix, right, Tim? Uh, but yeah, nothing else weird on Netflix. Let's look at Acquired. It's nine shows we've seen before. Uh, what's our new show? Oh, it's the one that um, led the entire streaming chart with 2.3 billion minutes viewed. And that would be Suits, 136 what? episodes. <sighs> Okay. Actually, I think we I think we might have talked through some of this. I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but we did not. I, we during the, the pre-show last week, I pulled up Netflix's top ten and just, hold just on, to hold see. Hold on, hold yeah. on. We're talking about the lawyer show that wanted to be <laughs> Game of Thrones so much that when people got killed off of Game of Thrones, they would become major players on the lawyer show. <laughs> <Is> that, <right? laughs> yes. Okay. Tim, you were in the process of trying to explain it. I interrupted you. What, what was the speculation you and Kim had? So, yeah, we I had pulled up Netflix's top 10 chart that they released, which now reflects viewers instead of minutes viewed. And I noticed on TV shows, because they release their data you know, weekly, they don't, they're not a month behind like Nielsen. And I'm like, wait, Suits, season one, season three, season four, I'm like, Oh God, Suits is going to be here next week. And Kim noticed it was, it had been trending on Netflix for a, a few weeks at this point. So we're like, yeah, it's going to be here next week when we get these Nielsen ratings. And that is because that was of course, true. yep, that is because it, the multiple seasons of the show arrived on Netflix on the 17th, just in time for these, these ratings. So they did, we didn't see it last week, but uh, with the full week of it, being back, uh, people binge the hell out of it. And okay, it is also credited to Peacock, which does make sense because this was a universal TV production that aired on USA. Uh, so maybe it was on Netflix before, but somebody decided they wanted a little more money and clearly licensed the show to Netflix to get that that Netflix money. By the way, you could have watched it on Peacock literally this entire time. Nobody oh, absolutely. Did. Yeah, I'm sure you could have. Yes. And we never saw it until it arrived on Netflix. That is the power of Netflix. Whose stock plummeted this week. Remember that plummeted oh netflix is yeah exactly here's a show pulling in two billion minutes viewed and no no we're selling we're not we don't believe you should your company should be valued this high swat is still here in second it's still over a billion minutes uh i will also point out gray's anatomy at its latest season the 19th season of episodes now available on netflix so 417 total it's in that's why it jumps up to third with 772 million minutes viewed but other than that it's just you know shows we've seen before bluey ncis cocomelon big bang theory Heartland, All-American, and Criminal Minds. So yeah, I'm excited for The Bear next week. I'm curious to see what the hell happens with Suits. Maybe can it go even higher? Maybe not. It's Now it's it, it'll have another full week because this, this was a full seven days of, of data from Nielsen. But yeah, it's uh, it's a fun, always a fun list to, to talk about when we get uh, new shows. And of course, I'm excited to see what happens with Secret Invasion adding uh, episodes week by week over the next month. All right. Thanks, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, we expect to see a lot more cancellations than green lights for a while. While, unfortunately, due to the strike. One project that's been canceled was the live action Masters of the Universe that was in the works at Netflix. The problem here was that we already had a definitive He-Man at the movies with Dolph Lundgren. This project didn't need a reboot. I could have told Netflix that $25 million ago. I feel like though if they'd waited a week and saw what Barbie made, they, they wouldn't have done that. It's a weird dichotomy. They're both Mattel products, but I don't think that lightning's going to strike twice just because they're both 
toys manufactured by Mattel. Yeah, and I also feel like we're stretching the definition of definitive when we describe anything from 1987's Masters of the Universe as, you know, <laughs> memorable in any way. It film made, I don't know, 17 million in box office. It was not good, and nobody wants this except for a very, very small group of people who cannot let go of their childhoods. Hey, hey, don't knock Frank Langella as Skeletor. He is saying this after he edited me a couple of weeks ago for describing the Transformers movie in theaters as good. No fair. <laughs> yeah, I remember the cartoon from from being a kid, but not not the live action movie. I guess I'm a little too young for that. So, yes, I just called all three of you old. As always, we finish up the show with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And I finished reading a book called Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. This book is currently sitting on top of the various bestseller lists. And it's something that my science fiction and fantasy group at work is reading. And it basically pulls together elements of Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and Twilight, I guess. It centers around a school for dragon riders, but it's college-age students rather than middle and high school school students. Anytime the dragons are featured, the book is super fun. The romance, which takes up a large part of the book, is not so great with the characters not fleshed out well enough to be convincing. Anyways, it's a romance disguised as a fantasy novel, one that had me thinking maybe I could just write a better dragon story myself. Raul, how about you? So I watched the 2017 reboot of Twin Peaks that played on Showtime. Dear God, help me. I took advantage of my new Showtime access through Paramount Plus to watch this series. Yes, I know it's been around for six years now. This reboot picks up 25 years after the original series ended about FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper investigating the mystery surrounding the murder of high school prom queen Laura Palmer. Created by David Lynch and Mark Frost, the series initially became a sensation known for its quirkiness, but by its second season, David Lynch's unconventional storytelling led to its cancellation. The subsequent movie didn't give fans any closure, so when a revival was announced, there was a lot of excitement, except people forgot that we're dealing with David Lynch here. Lynch was never in it to tell a traditional story of a cop solving a crime. There was always a deeper meaning to everything, and the narrative often felt like a fevered dream full of symbolism, understandable only to Lynch and perhaps not even him. Sure, I get that every story has some moral, like a parable teaching some lesson, but that doesn't mean you have to make the narrative impenetrable. While superficially, Twin Peaks is a murder mystery, you can dig deeper to find that it's about the corruption of the American dream and how even this idyllic small town, if you scratch the surface, you will find the darkness of drug abuse, violence, rape, incest, and murder. It's when Lynch layered in the supernatural elements that Twin Peaks was the most impenetrable. And in 2017, with 18 one-hour-long episodes, he does nothing to make Twin Peaks any more accessible. After 25 years, it's possible that many fans of the first season of Twin Peaks had forgotten about the second season, and surely most did not see that movie. So this revival would come as quite a shock. It sometimes feels like Lynch actively hates his audience with long, drawn-out scenes that seem to serve no purpose, mediocre acting that's seems intentional and ineffable sequences that are best suited for a nap if they weren't constantly peppered with jarring sounds and noises. Lynch is perhaps 
criticizing the modern desire to reboot everything. And if that's the case, then he truly is giving a middle finger to the fans who just wanted more Twin Peaks. It's suggested that the ending is a lesson to everyone who wants a happy ending, but that implies that anyone was asking for a happy ending. In a generation where Tony Soprano fades to black in a diner and Walter White dies of cancer, we don't want a happy ending. We just want closure. And Lynch steadfastly and violently fails to deliver. The episodes are peppered with characters and subplots that suggest there's another narrative to be told, like there's another season just around the corner that'll surely explain why these two people are arguing at the bar or that woman is so desperate to get home or who Billy is. But it's all red herrings intended to frustrate and confuse. There is no more. Your reaction is the intent. I have some choice and unkind words for David Lynch. No more than he deserves. I'm only giving back what he gave to us, but I'm going to keep those words to myself. If you were a fan of the original Twin Peaks, I suggest you forget this 2017 reboot ever happened. Amusingly, I tried to watch the original Twin Peaks and found it impenetrable and quit it after a couple episodes myself. So there you go. Tim, what's been keeping you busy? Uh, other than mentioning Cyberpunk 2077 again, which I'm still very much enjoying because it's a very long game and an in-depth game as long as you just focus on the side missions and don't you know plow through the main story. Uh, by the time you guys hear this, I will have seen Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 in the theater. Again, the, my first time in the theater since um, late 2019 when I saw Rise of Skywalker. So I'm like super excited for that. And uh, I will hopefully gush about it next week and hopefully have something else because I do have a couple of days off and plan on checking out something else and Barbie um, Heimer, Barbie Heimer. That, that that is actually on the table that is that is absolutely on the table that double feature so maybe maybe next week stay tuned awesome David how about you all right Tim and I've had an insane week I've watched nothing I mean literally nothing this week except Big Bang Theory reruns that's not even a joke however I will catch up on a couple of video games I've played over the last few months that I've really enjoyed one of them is AEW Fight Forever and Kim loves it because it's stupid and I mean that in kind of a good way and kind of a not it has arcade controllers and they're not the most responsive at times which leads to some really funny things I was in a, uh, a three-way match and and I was trying to pin somebody and the person breaking up the pen with what three times, Kim, they were elbowing like dead air instead. Yeah, something like just that. Just elbowing dead air. It was Alistair Black and he was, yeah, just couldn't quite Kim was couldn't laughing quite get hysterically. his aim, aim right. Yes. It was like her favorite episode of The Simpsons ever. She was laughing so hard. And I've had other moments like that. I had a 20-minute ladder match. And the reason why it lasted 20 minutes is I was physically incapable of actually putting up the ladder. So I just beat the stuffing out of Jade Cargill. She was just no health bar for the last 18 minutes of the match. And so eventually she'd get it up enough to stagger up to her feet. And then i just club her again, all the while trying to get this stupid ladder to go up. And it wouldn't work. The game is so much fun and it has so many bugs that need to be fixed. I mean, so many bugs that I recommend it, but I recommend it with a keep your eyes open and probably find it for $9.99 rather than paying full price thing. I think that's all it's worth. And the other thing I tried out, and it was because Kim had a glint in her eye when she heard about it, is Arcade Paradise, which you can download for free right now if you've got Xbox Ultimate. This is basically a laundry 
simulator where you own a uh, laundry business. Actually, your jerk dad owns the business. I'm sorry, your jerk stepfather owns the business and they don't treat you well. And the thing of the game is you're trying to prove to them how out of touch the old man is. It's like a bad 1980s sitcom. And the way you do that is you do laundry by day, but you sneakily build an arcade in the back to prove that it's a more profitable business venture. So I have done a surprising amount of fake laundry, more than I've done real laundry lately because of my back. That's a real thing. The games are like completely new. These are like 8-bit, 16-bit games that they're designing inside the system and you can play them as a distraction. And honestly, I like them the least of it, but other people are like obsessed. I have read on the internet, people are like, you know, really competing for worldwide high scores in games that are games within games. I actually really recommend Arcade Paradise, but I will warn you, it's kind of a time sink. Tim, I will say, if you see this one for cheap on Steam this holiday season, you should absolutely give it a shot. I think you in particular would enjoy it. Cool. Yeah, I'd heard of it. I'll I'll keep it in mind. Uh, Yeah, I'm not surprised about Fight Forever. They kept promising, okay, this is going to be the best wrestling game in, you know, 20 plus years. And it kind of did and kind of didn't deliver on that. It is a very profitable venture for them, I'm confident. And it does exactly what it was promised to do, which is it's just a stupid brain dead beat em up. And I like that about it. We're having so much fun. Kim likes watching me play, but there are times where I'm just looking at my controller going, are my fingers broken or is the game broken? <laughs> It is a heck of a lot of fun to watch, though. So I will say if if you want to watch some folks play it on YouTube or whatever, maybe you can get a sense for why it's hilarious and absolutely do that. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at streamingvoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash streamingvoid. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 